This is Billy Corbin, director of Cocaine Cowboys and the 30 for 30s, The You and Broke. And there's nothing we love in Miami more than driving cruise control with no hands, steering with our knee, and not using turn signals, which is kind of what it's like listening to the Cruise Control podcast with my man, Randy Cruz. We're now live on the Cruise Control Podcast here on SoundCloud.com. I'm your host, Randy Cruz. You can follow me on Twitter at Randy J. Cruz, R-A-N-D-Y, the letter J-C-R-U-Z. And I'm joined by the author of Console Wars, Blake Harris. He's on Twitter at Blake J. Harris, NYC. Blake, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm great, Randy. How are you? Doing good, man. And before we get started... um, I do want to first of all thank you. I appreciate you coming on. We've been going back uh, back and forth for a while. You're a very busy guy, very understandable, but I know that finally the time has come for you to come on the show and talk <laughs> about this book, man. <laughs> I am happy to put down my uh, Sega controller, my Super Nintendo controllers, and make the time to speak with you, Randy. <laughs> um, before I get into any questions, I, I, I do also want to say that I read the book. It took me a while, but um, when I was done, it was something that I felt was very entertaining, fascinating. It's great for those who have, who have not read it or may have never heard about it, which would be insane. It's called Console Wars. Go ahead and read it. And it really took me back to um, my childhood. So, you know, I was born in, in uh, 83, so I was right in the middle of <clears throat> everything that was going on with the whole Console Wars and um, you know, it. the book is fantastic. It's great. Um, I'm pretty sure you get that all the time, but I just want to tell you that for myself, um, it, w- it was definitely a great read. Well, thank you. I, 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 I love hearing it because, like you, I was born in 1982, so this is, you know, not just a great business story or video game story. It's like the story of my life, so I love I'm so glad to hear when it really resonates with someone who also went through the same stuff that I did. It was a soldier on the front lines of this battle. Yeah, man, it's great. And I guess I'll start off with this. Um, the book is <laughs> the book is 500 plus, plus pages, man. Um, <laughs> how long did it take you to write this book? Um, probably about three years. It was about two years of almost exclusively research and then one year mostly of writing. Uh, and I say about three years because in addition to the book, we are also doing a documentary and a feature film, so that was kind of going on concurrently, well, the documentary at least. Mm. So, I, you know, it's hard to allocate which, which interview was for which thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it took a long time, and I, I have to admit that if I knew going into it how long it would be and, and how big the scope of the book would be, I... I mean, I guess I still would have done it, but I maybe would have been a little bit more scared. But it's just such a big story, because you kind of, you know, when you hear Sega versus Nintendo, and it kind of brings back that memory of, like, Clash, Right. you think, like, you think like, oh, it was like this big Super Bowl in video games. But it's not. It was like five years worth of football with Super Bowls in between. So it was like a whole, you know, to really understand um, the big moments, there was so much more context, and there were just so many people, and it was... That was the hardest part, how to try to, to 
shine a light on all these people that made major contributions, but also to do so in a way that kept the story entertaining and moved it along, and it wasn't just this guy did this, this guy did this. Mm-hmm. What uh, two-part question? What one? What made you write this book in the first place? And was it solely because you were such a video game fan at that time, or did, did somebody come to you, uh, come to you and say, "Hey, Blake, I think you should write something about this"? That's a good question. So. My brother got me a Sega Genesis for my birthday like four and a half years ago. And, you know, I, like I said, I was born in 1982, so it was like the system that we had when we were kids. And I remember, I, I had so many great memories playing the Sega Genesis. And I hadn't played it in about 20 years or so, or 15 years. And then my brother got it for me, and it brought back all those great memories. And then after that, since I'm an adult now, I, you know, there's a lot of questions, kind of like what happened to Sega, uh, where did they come from, why did my family get a super, uh, get a Sega Genesis and not a Super Nintendo, uh, what was going on behind the scenes, you know, I'm a big sports guy, so I love all the, like, trade rumors and drama behind the scenes, and I figured there must have been some cool stuff like that going on, and so I went up to uh, a Barnes & Noble in your neck of the woods, actually, I went to the Barnes & Noble on 86th Street, Okay. which is like... It's like a really big store, like two stories, definitely one of the bigger Barnes and Nobles I've ever been to. Yeah. And, uh, and I asked the woman at the information desk, you know, can I get one of the books on Sega and Nintendo? I figured there were like several. Um, and she laughed at me, and then uh, I said, all right, well, can I just get, you know, a book on the history of video games or the business of video games? And, and they didn't even have a single thing in the entire store, nor did they have anything that they could, like, order for me. Wow. I thought it was shocking. Yeah, the only books that they had that were related to video games were walkthrough guides. And so, you know, for an industry that's bigger than film and bigger than music, who each have their own sections, I just thought that was very strange. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that I left the store thinking I'm going to write this book, but I was very, I was very curious. And I was curious to learn what actually went on. And so I started... Uh, speaking with the few people whose names I knew were part of that era, like Tom Kalinske, who was the president of Sega from 1990 to 96, Al Nilsson, who was a marketing guru there at Sega. And uh, then after speaking with a few of those guys, that's what I really knew. This is something I wanted to spend several years of my life working on because the story was fantastic. Mm. Now, just to backtrack a bit, um, I, I did recall that, when I first started contacting you on, on Twitter, uh, you told me a story about how, you know, when you were younger that your, your, your parents got you a Genesis and did not get you a Super Nintendo, but now yep. did you want a Super Nintendo more than, more than Genesis? Yeah, absolutely. Cause, <laughs> you know, my first, the first console that I had was the 8-bit entertainment system, which... You know, I think a lot of people, especially our age, that was their first console, or it was the console that we all loved, because mm-hmm. it had fantastic games. And um, so, naturally, my brother and I wanted the next one when Nintendo was coming out, the new system. We thought, you know, we love Nintendo. Why not? Of course we want this, Super Nintendo. But my parents, I remember my dad specifically saying that he wouldn't buy it for us because then Nintendo would just come out with the Super Duper Nintendo, and then a Super Super Duper Nintendo. And then, uh, you know, that, that is kind of what happened, even though it took several years in between. But uh, so so I guess, in a way, you know, my parents did not want to give any more money to Nintendo, and they ended up getting us the Sega Genesis. And, and that was especially relevant to me, kind of looking back on all this, because, you know, what my parents really didn't like 
about the Super Nintendo and that a lot and what a lot of parents didn't like was that it was not backwardly compatible. It didn't play your older games. Right. And so, you know, if you really think about it, it was like that's a business decision that Nintendo made along the lines that they didn't want to charge an extra amount of money or they didn't want to spend the extra money to make it backwardly compatible. And because of that business decision, I ended up getting a Sega and that really changed my childhood. Now, do you think that was a smart decision on Nintendo's part to where they create a whole new console, uh, kind of upgraded from you know eight to sixteen bit, but the games that were out previously cannot be played on the new one? Was that smart at the time for them for them to do that? I don't think it was smart, but I'm, I mean it's not surprising if you think about what Nintendo just how they constantly operate. They always want to have like a unique proprietary game cartridge or or playing disc. Like you know, even when when PlayStation came out and it was great because it played uh, CDs, and then PlayStation Two came out and it was great because it played DVDs, and then PlayStation Three played Blu-rays. Uh-huh. You know, think about like Nintendo stuff. They've had they had a, a cartridge-based N64 at a time when everyone else had CDs, and they came out with GameCube, which played. I don't know, their own version of mini-CDs. Um, even the Wii, didn't, it wasn't DVDs that it was playing or Blu-rays. Like, they always like to have their own kind of uh, game, like, cartridge or game-playing disc that other people can't copy, and that it's like they're the only ones who are making it. And, I mean, I personally don't think that's a good idea because it doesn't work with anything else, and it's, therefore it's like a very closed system. Now, in the book, you had a line saying you were either a Sega person or a Nintendo person. You you couldn't choose both. So, right. at that time, when you were growing up, which side were you on, Sega or Nintendo? And you, as a as a grown man now, which side uh, which side <laughs> do you you know still on, Sega or or Nintendo? Um, the answer to both is. Team Sega, uh, but especially as a kid, when uh, you know, it, uh, it, I'm sure you can relate. It's not like political parties for kids. It was like once you were on a side, that was like your entire philosophy. And <laughs> yeah, everything about everything about the other side was wrong. Everything about your side was right, even though you kind of knew, like, oh, maybe maybe that's not exactly right. But uh, yeah, I was totally on Team Sega back then. I think a big part of it for me was those commercials. They had those very edgy. Welcome to the next level commercials and end with the there you go, the Sega screen. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I love that. You know, I remember I felt very cool to have a, a Sega Genesis, and that was that was kind of the point of those commercials. They wanted me to feel that way. And then as an adult, um, I mean, I think that I, I really do love both systems. I ended up getting a Super Nintendo when I was 18, and I really enjoy those games. I still I have a Wii U today. I love Nintendo games. Um, but I think that I always kind of have a special place in my heart for Sega. And also, I really do um, relate very much to like the scrappy attitude that the company had during that time, which is why they were successful. What about you? What was your console experience like during that era? Oh, uh, man. I'm going to tell you right now. I, I, was, I, was team, I was team Nintendo from day one. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, I was going to go into one of my questions next. But basically, I never owned... Um, a, a, a Sega Genesis. I think the only thing I owned of Sega was the Dreamcast, and that's that's like maybe 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. So I never owned anything from Sega. I owned Nintendo, Super Nintendo, 64, um, 
whatever else that came out, Game Boy, you name it. And there wasn't a reason why it. I somehow I just gravitated. Maybe it was the games, the the kind of games Nintendo had out because at that time they they were all classic. You're talking Zelda, Mario, uh, Donkey Kong, Tetris, Pac-Man, whatever it is. To me, I just felt N- Nintendo and Super Nintendo had better games than what Sega was putting out. Yeah. No, they and they definitely have more classic games. Uh, you know. I, even on the Nintendo Entertainment System from 25 years ago, I'm sure we could list off more games for that than all of the Sega consoles that came afterwards. Mm. So for you being a Sega fan, kind of um, educate me a bit. If I had to ask you on the spot, maybe you have to, to, to think about it a bit. But if I ask you, or if somebody asks you, hey, Blake, you know, can you name me the 5, 10 most classic games Sega ever put out. Is it more? Is it is it easier than than someone saying name me ten classic Nintendo games? Um, I think yeah, because it's easier because there weren't as many great games for the Sega Genesis or for any of the Sega consoles. Um, you know, I think that when it comes to Sega, the thing, you know, the thing that in the end was probably really good that my parents got me the Genesis instead of keeping going with Nintendo was because they made, they did make great sports games during that era. Uh, better ones than Nintendo, and they also, Nintendo also didn't really care that much about sports games for that period of time. Right. So I think, like, a couple of the ones I would say are uh, Joe Montana Football and mm. NHL 94, um, in addition to the Sonic games, and then uh, I think the Mortal Kombat is, uh, is a classic for the Genesis, um, or games like Echo the Dolphin, but... You know, I think that after those five or six titles I just said, I think it gets a little bit harder to kind of pick some, whereas you don't, you wouldn't really have the same problem with Nintendo, because I could probably name about 20 beloved games right now off the spot. Mm-hmm. We're chatting with Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars, here on Cruise Control Podcast. Um, I do want to ask you this. how, When you were writing a book and doing the whole process, how cooperative were the people you interviewed for the book, you know, Nielsen, Kalinske, people at Nintendo, Peter Mayen, was it something that they were all open to talking about? Yeah, that's a great question, and that was like, that was the real hard part about the book. I mean, the, write, the writing was hard, but I, at least I knew that, or I felt like I was capable, if I put it in the time, I could get a good, well-written story. But the access thing was very tough, um, especially because this is my first book, and prior to that, you know, the only professional writing I had done is screenwriting and nothing that ever got produced. So it's not like I had a whole bunch of credits to impress these guys with. So uh, early on, uh, luckily, folks like Tom Kalinske and Al Nilsson uh, were willing to, t- they were willing to kind of take a chance on me after I kind of made my case to them on why I thought this was important and why, you know, they should speak with me. Because they, they've had other They've had several interview requests over the years, and, uh, mm. you know, they have, <laughs> they don't get paid for these things, and it was a long time ago for them. So after I kind of proved to them why I thought that this book would be important and different and also the potential of a movie, it was, uh, it was, it was, I guess it was a relatively easy process after that point, speaking with Tom and Al and kind of getting their blessings to speak with other employees from Sega because, you know, I could say, like, hey, your boss 
um, has already spoken with me. He suggested I speak with you. The, the bigger challenge with Sega was kind of figuring out who to speak with because because there were so, you know because there were had been no books written before and it, because there was such a short amount of literature, I, I didn't even know like who were the main players that I sh- I didn't know who were the main players I should be speaking with. Uh, but Nintendo was a completely different story. They, uh, as described in the book, they're a very insular, tight-lipped company, and uh, that exists to this day. And also, a lot of the employees that are mentioned in the book, like Peter Mayne or Howard Lincoln, uh, they are either still with the company, Howard runs the Mariners, um, or they were with the company until a couple of years ago, so they, they feel like they're still, you know, they were with the company for 20-plus years. And so that was really hard. Um you know, especially to get past the point of even when a few of them were willing to speak with me, it was for more of like a, you know, like a half hour Q and A, which was great. But you know, because the style of the book is much more like in the room and the moment into these people's heads, uh, it, it really relies on much more of like a little bit of a collaborative aspect and uh, kind of keeping an ongoing dialogue. So that was tough. Um, but I, like, kind of a big turning point was eventually. I put together a book proposal, and HarperCollins uh, bought the book and agreed to publish it after I wrote it. And then uh, also I went out to L.A. and met with uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, and they agreed to want to do a movie based on the book. And so I kind of, towards the end of the process, went back to Nintendo and said, hey, you know, there's a book coming out, there's movies coming out. You guys are mentioned a lot in both of these things. Uh as of now, it's almost exclusively from your competitor's perspective. And so I understand if you don't want to speak with me, but, you know, I really think you should want to tell your side of the story. And also, you know, I tried to get across that, like, I was asking them basically to do more work on my part. It would have been so much easier if I just said, all right, fine. I said, no, I don't have to write about that. Mm. Um, and, and I was able to meet with their head of corporate communications and finally kind of get the, they, they were, uh, they ended up being very helpful in the end, but it was like the last few months of the book. Um, and also luckily for the documentary, we were able to interview Howard and Peter and all these people. So it was, it was very tough. And I can understand a lot of the things that people told me about dealing with Nintendo. And, you know, at one point they gave me approval and two days later they took it away. And I just felt like I was jumping through a lot of hoops. But, uh, in the end, I was able to speak with just about everyone I wanted to, and uh, maybe had that been a little bit different earlier on, the first half of the book would have focused a little bit more on Nintendo, um, because it does almost focus almost exclusively on Sega. But then again, I do think that Sega is the underdog in the story at that point, and probably the more compelling uh, read. So. Mm. Who was um, if you can't recall, who was the the one or two people that was the hardest to track down for an interview? And were there anybody that you wanted to in, wanted to interview that you just couldn't get it done, or just kind of say, you know what, thanks but no thanks? <laughs> uh, I would never say thanks but no thanks because <laughs> I you know I'd rather speak with like a, a janitor who works at Nintendo for three days, uh-huh. not speak with him at all because. Hey, you know, my time's not that valuable. I'd rather I, maybe I'll have something interesting to say. Um, but probably the hardest to track down uh, or the hardest to get an interview with were Howard Lincoln, which I kind of described how I was able to finally do that, and then Olaf Olafsson, who was at 
Olaf Olafsson, who was at Sony during that time period, um, he is a very uh, elusive character, um, as he is described in the book. And uh, he, I also, you know, he kind of was, most of the people at least had some access to other people, you know, they kept in touch, but nobody really knew uh, Olaf. And it, kind of the same thing was true for Bill White, who was the guy who worked at uh, Nintendo, and then he worked at Sega, and was the, you know, was the one executive who switched sides. And then nobody really knew how to get in touch with him. So those guys were tough. Um, but, you know, when you are writing a book of this scope, you get really good at Internet stalking, and I finally was able to find both of them. And uh, the one person that I never was able to speak with was uh, Minoru Arakawa, who is the head of Nintendo. I kind of anticipated not being able to speak with him because he is the son-in-law of, who, of Hiroshi Amauchi, who was still the president of Nintendo at the time. And, uh, you know, the closest I was able to get was I was able to get put in touch with his his current handler slash assistant who uh, could try to get me answers um, and, and, you know, kind of help me in that regard. But, uh, you know, it would have been great to sit down with uh, Minora and actually hear stuff from his own words, of course. When the Master System was released in, uh, in 86 here in... Um in the U.S., 85 in Japan, was it released to be another alternative to the, the Nintendo system or to be in direct competition with them right from that point on? Yeah, I think so because, I mean, it definitely was because I think that their mindset was Sega had been, had been in the arcade business since the late 1960s. Nintendo hadn't really entered it until the late 1970s, so from, from Sega's perspective, like, between the two, they were the more polished video game company with a better pedigree, and they saw Nintendo. Nintendo released the, the family computer, which became the NES in the United States. That was released in Japan in 1983. So they saw, like, wow, Nintendo was able to do it with their system, and they're not even as good of an arcade company as us, so let's you know blow them out of the water. Uh, that obviously didn't work at all, but I think that going into it, they expected they would find much more success. Um, and they found none, because as you know, like Nintendo didn't just dominate Sega and their other competitors. You know, when you think about corporate rivalries, whether it's Nike and Reebok or whether it's Coke and Pepsi, like the market leader usually has more of like a 60-40 lead or 70-30, but like Nintendo's lead back then was like 95-5, like it was so dominant. Right. Um, so Sega was a little caught off guard and surprised by that, um, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess they weren't willing to give up because they continued to try with, eventually with the Mega Drive and the Sega Genesis. Now, you'll probably laugh at me, but um, I did not know <laughs> Nintendo meant leave luck to heaven until I read the book. <laughs> no, no, I didn't know it until I did the research. So ah, okay. I wouldn't laugh at you. Now it's I feel like, better. Uh, no, they really, like, I think that kind of, the fact that you don't know that and the fact that, like, I didn't know that they were they've been around for 100 years. I didn't know that they were in the playing card business, the Hanafudu cards. Like, all that stuff kind of speaks to what Nintendo's all about. Like, they don't... They are such a quiet company when it comes to their history and to also, like, with interacting with consumers and with customers. Like, they kind of just do their thing and they say, here, buy it, buy it or not. Um, but they don't have that kind of, like, direct communication. And so... Uh, like like you, I didn't know a lot of these things, and that's something that 
you know, I, I think that Nintendo nowadays is trying to focus on like better connecting with their customers and trying to basically trying to be something more than a faceless organization because that's how they've operated for almost a hundred years. Do you think that most video game fans or just fans around the world would know what Nintendo means if they don't look it up on Google or something? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because, you know, you think they're like, you know, another company that has such a, you know, fascinating origin to their name, like there would be a commercial about it or there would be some like little thing about it or some memorable way. Maybe it would have appeared in a Mario cartoon, but they, like, they just, they they really kind of just let the game developers focus on the games and then just try to market those games and don't really care that much about their brand, um, which has hurt them a little bit. And, I, and I'm not saying that that's like a poor decision because, hey, as someone who's playing games, I'd probably rather than focus on the games and the marketing. But mm-hmm. I do think that most people would not know that. And there's a lot of things that people probably wouldn't know that Nintendo could have easily made uh, very accessible and very present amongst in the minds of fans. When the book was over, did you like? Let me let me say it better. Now, when the sure. book was over, how much of what you wrote you actually knew about before you went in there? So, twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent of what you found out. How much did you know about it before you went in there? Oh, well, I almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Like, maybe 10%, but, uh, like, you know, prior to writing it, I didn't, I didn't know, I, I, gaming historian are aware of the history in the way that, you know, like, there's a, a part early on where Nintendo snubbed Sony publicly and they were going to do the Nintendo PlayStation, but they ended up going a separate way. Like, that's something that, there are, you know, probably about, I think, like, 30 or 40% of Mm-hmm. video game players already know. Um, that, like, I didn't even know that kind of stuff, so that stuff is a surprise to me. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff was a big surprise to me. So that is really what made it fun. You know, every other writing project I've worked on before, you reach a point where it kind of gets a little annoying, where it's like more like you have to finish it than like you want to finish it because that early excitement kind of gets uh, knocked over when it's like the monotony of our okay, guys got to do this, do this. There was so much interesting stuff that I was finding out every day that it made it a real joy to keep going with. And, uh, you know, looking back at the end, as you said, like, you know, I can definitely say that I knew so little of it. And then more so, just cause I didn't know any of the people behind it. I didn't know, like, the whys. Even the few things that I did know happened, I had no idea that so much thought went into it or why this decision was made over that decision. And that was a really cool part to kind of connect the dots. Like, oh, okay, that's why Sonic Tuesday was such a big deal. Or I remember Super Mario Bros. 3 being in The Wizard, and that's why the Super Mario Bros. movie sucked. You said Part 3 was uh, sucked, right? Part 3? No, they just said the Super Mario Brothers movie sucks. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh man, I you know what's so funny? I didn't even want to ask that because I I already knew <laughs> because yeah. Oh man, I, I think when it, I think at that time when it came to that movie and the Street Fighter movie and the Mortal Kombat movie and it, it, it sounded good on paper and as a fan, like, yeah, I'm gonna see Mortal Kombat today. And then like looking back at it 20 years later, you're like, maybe they should not have made that movie. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, the kind of interesting thing with the Super Mario Bros. movie, it, like, I really think it sucks. And I think a lot of things that when you know they suck and you watch them years later, they don't suck as much because you expect them to suck. 
yeah. movie is still it's just as bad or even worse than I remembered. But like one of the reasons that it's so bad without getting into like the the details in the chapter of like how this script was changed that like ultimately Nintendo was in an, having an identity crisis. Did they want to be like a little kid game company like the Disney of video games, or did they want to grow up with their players like Sega was doing and kind of be like more of an adult? you know, the more of, like, a, a broader company. And that movie, like, really doesn't know what it is. Is it, like, a family-friendly movie? Or is it, like, this weird futuristic dinosaur movie? And it really kind of speaks to how Nintendo was, like, caught um, unsure of themselves. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that it sucked among plenty. Now, for, uh, for those who never owned <clears throat> a, a Genesis, someone like me, for example, did I... Well, and those people miss out on the impact Genesis had? Uh, that's a good question. Well, I guess let me first ask you, did you ever feel like you were missing out on something? Because we discussed earlier, like, you know, it was like political parties, like you were on Team Sega or Team Nintendo, because I even, I loved my Genesis, and I thought of myself as Team Sega, but, but I definitely, like, felt at times like I was missing out on Super Nintendo stuff. I mean, even, like, I remember Mario Paint came out, and, I don't think it was something that I ended up liking in the end, but it was, it was so cool. It was so different. Like, there was a lot of times when I felt like I was missing something. So regardless of whether the games were good, I did always constantly feel that, like, oh, this new game came out on Super Nintendo, and I remember Street Fighter came out. Like, did you feel that ever with Genesis games that were coming out? Um, I, I think more so when it came to Sonic. Um, I think when it came to John Madden. I mean, eventually Madden w- was out on, on Super Nintendo, but you know, not not so much. Even like the the the, the Buster Douglas boxing, I wasn't into that because we already had um, Tyson's Punch Out on, on Nintendo. So it was like, um, I don't know, man. It, it's weird. I'm trying to think 20 years back of why I did not own a Genesis. I guess I was just so much in love with with the Super Nintendo and and uh, Nintendo One that I felt like I didn't need uh, a Genesis. Even nowadays. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more team Xbox than I am PlayStation. And people tell me all the time, like, why don't you own a, a PS3 or PS4? I'm like, well, I, I'm just a fan of the Xbox 360. I'm, I'm going to get the Xbox one soon. So, um, I guess people just had their own, um, yeah. their own liking, you know? Yeah. I think like, I think there's a lot of people we're kind of in a similar boat as you, and, and that kind of also just speaks to how good the Nintendo games were and how replayable they were, that you just really feel too much like you were missing out. So I think that, like, the one time when people maybe really felt like they were missing out was with the Mortal Kombat, because especially when you're, uh, like, a 12-year-old kid or 10-year-old kid, if your friend has the same game with you, but it actually has, like, fatalities and it's bloody and it's like, the, the more teenage version of the game and you have, like, the version that was gray sweat, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like you would, you maybe feel like, wow, am I like, you know, I'm having a tea party over here, and my buddy is like, you know, getting drunk on this violence. <laughs> so that's like maybe a time when you would feel like a little bit left out. But for the most part, like the good news is that both systems had great games. And when people say like, who won the console wars between Sega and Nintendo, or who are who is even winning today between Sony and Microsoft? Like the real winner is absolutely us. Like, right, right, right. The more competition there is, the more pressure there is on them to make more innovative games, to make better games, to try to, like, at least satisfy their customer base. So uh, I was happy to be caught in the middle of that crossfire. You you as a fan, do you kind of wish that 
Sony and Microsoft could have just like a little sort of rivalry the same way Sega and Nintendo had? Or do you just feel like, well, that yeah. was 20 years ago so and, and that, that won't happen again? I, so much I wish that. You know, <laughs> one of the questions I'm asked the most is like, how, you know, how does the rivalry back then compare to the rivalry today? You know, our console wars still going on. Like, yeah, there's always going to be console wars because as long as there's money to be made with video games, there's going to be more than one player. But maybe I'm just like a, a, a masochistic sports fan. But my favorite part of sports is like the drama, the Yankees and the Red Sox. Like this guy hates that guy, and this pitcher throws at that guy. I think that that makes it so much more entertaining. And like I said, it makes it more, um, you know, it kind of creates innovation. So I think it's a little bit tougher today. Like, you know, you describe yourself as an Xbox guy. Not so many people like do that. I think most people, a lot of people have both systems, which mm. is interesting because people didn't have that back then and the systems were much cheaper. But, uh, you know, it's really hard to to describe the differences between the two companies, at least between between Sega and Nintendo. Even in the schoolyard, you could say, like, here's the ten things that it means to be a Sega guy. It's like Sonic, it's faster games, it's sports games. And you can say things about Nintendo. I think it's a little harder with Sony and Microsoft to say what they represent, and, you know, that there's no value inherent to saying what they represent, but I think that the, the actual value to that is kind of the perception of the company uh, like builds a certain type of gaming, and I think that it's not, you know, it would feel like there's more gaming if there was that, more of that rivalry. So I absolutely do miss that ferocious rivalry, but at the same time, I understand kind of the reasons why it doesn't exist so much with you know, one of them being because of the feud between Sega and Nintendo, they put into place things like the the rating system. They put into place things like the E3 trade show, the industry organization. So, so the industry is much more of an industry these right. days and less of a wild west. And probably the bigger reason is just the cost. Like back then, games cost about a million dollars to make, so you could take a little bit more risks. You could one third party developer could work exclusively with Sega. And, and, you know, risk giving up money with Nintendo. But nowadays, these games are so expensive to make. Like, you know, they cost as much or sometimes more than movies. You can't really, like, say, we're just going to go with Microsoft and get rid of Sony unless the money makes sense. And that's really hard because they're so expensive. <clears throat> we're chatting with Blake J. Harris, the author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation here on the Cruise Control Podcast. And, and, and I asked you that. Um, Blake, because, you know, it, you kind of just feel like whatever Xbox puts out as far as games, they're not doing it in direct competition with, with Sony. Whatever Sony puts out, you just know, oh, it, it, it's just a brand new game. It's not like because Xbox got this game out, now Sony is countering with a, a, a new game of right. their own. And now, back in the days, which leads to my question... You just you knew what Sega's mindset was. It was just to attack, attack, attack uh, Nintendo right from the jump. Whatever they did, they want they wanted to do better. They wanted to be first in line to whatever Nintendo was doing. Was Sega's main train of thought to go and attack Nintendo every chance they got, more than just sustaining a great brand and a consistent product? Yeah, that's a really good question because. That's, yes, that's, that is what their, their mentality was, and and maybe in retrospect that wasn't a good thing because maybe they should have been focused a little more on is this a good game or is this like something that we should be spending our time on. But their, everything they thought of was in regards to Nintendo, 
which is interesting because, like, especially the first time around when I spoke with people at Nintendo and I asked them, like, you know, how conscious were you guys of what Sega was doing? How much did that influence your behavior? Uh-huh. They always said nothing. Like, yeah. they were they were they were arrogant to some extent. I mean, they were arrogant. Even if Sega is an inferior brand in their mind, like, just still talking about what the competition's doing for the sake of just making sure that there's nothing great out great out there that you should be doing as well. But they didn't even acknowledge Sega. But Sega was so conscious of what Nintendo was doing. Um, and that was a good thing because Nintendo kind of, you know, Nintendo kind of hid their head in the sand. But, uh, yeah, I think that Sega, everything they did, especially in those first three or four years uh, under, Tom, under Tom, was like, here's what Nintendo's doing. Here's the ten things we could be doing in response. Let's figure out, like, which ones we want to do and what are the priorities. Yeah, I mean, you know, Nintendo can be arrogant and say, well, you know, we weren't paying attention, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. But, you know, we, we we all know that Sega had a monumental impact of how Nintendo changed, uh, of you know, with what they were doing. How much of a better company and product did Sega's competition and tactics make Nintendo become? Uh, well, one thing I just want to say that I was reminded of when we were talking about that is, like, even in the speeches that Nintendo gave at these, like, at the Consumer Electronics shows and eventually at the E3, like, they never even mentioned Sega by name. They would always say, like, the other guy. Like, they, it's like, yeah. it always reminded me of, like, Lord Voldemort, where it's like, he who must not be named. We're not even going to acknowledge this guy. But uh, I think that probably around 1992, 1993, Nintendo was forced to kind of wake up a bit. And that's where the, like, real lasting legacy and impact of Sega comes into play. Because obviously they are not around as once they were. They're no longer a hardware company since the Dreamcast. Um, They definitely are not a big software developer these days, or not as big as one would expect. But their impact was so much so that they made video games mainstream. And uh, that's something that I think, like, really changed the way that Nintendo did business. And, uh, you know, I like to think that the pressure from Sega is what eventually led to games like Donkey Kong Country, which was a big game changer for the SNES and one of my all-time favorites. And, uh, you know, really really put the video ga- put video games on a different type of trajectory, um, which, is, which leads us to where we are today with Sony and Microsoft. You mentioned Mortal Kombat earlier. And, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you, you know, you had Street Fighter... Zelda, Mario, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Tetris, John Madden, um, you know, Turtles, all all those games. But yep. how did Mortal Kombat change the video game industry because of how violent it was? And at that time, a lot of kids seemed to gravitate to that kind of game. Yeah, I mean, especially in the context of, like, I would say the best, as a kid, like, looking back, the, the, most, the game I wanted to play the most in 1992 or late 1991, within the arcades, it was like the Street Fighter 2. That was like the, the it game um, after Sonic the Hedgehog and maybe after Super Mario World after the release of Super Nintendo. And so when that came to the Super Nintendo, I was really jealous. But like, so that was either the game that you owned if you had a uh, Super Nintendo or the game you, you wish you owned if you had a Genesis. So when, when Mortal Kombat came out in the arcades, it was like that game on speed and and so violent and like it was really cool because I talked about it a couple times in the book. Like I felt like video games were almost like the secret language, the secret 
club amongst kids that like parents just didn't understand to quote Will Smith. Like they didn't realize how violent it was getting or how serious it was getting. And this was like something that we could kind of get away with. Um, you know, I don't know that my parents would have let me watch that kind of a movie when I was 10 years old, but, uh, like it was a really big deal. And it was a really big deal for Nintendo to censor the game and to not let it be as violent as it was in the arcade. And, and the arcade thing is like an aspect you kind of forget about, I guess, uh, forget about during this time. You know, I think that the popularity of arcades did dwindle in the late 80s and early 90s and continued to do so. But like, I used to play Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat in, my, in a local pizza place that I'd go to like every weekend with my family. And like, the arcades were kind of like a minor league version of like what was coming to your console. So there was so much anticipation in the same way there is like when a prospect gets promoted in baseball and it was like so exciting when Mortal Kombat was coming to both systems on the same day on Mortal Monday. And the fact that the Nintendo version was like kind of such a, a dud in contrast to the violence and the fun of like everything you could do on the Genesis was a big turning point for, for me as a kid. And I think that, um, it really opened up our appetite for games that would eventually sound like Grand Theft Auto and stuff like that. Can you believe how much money we donated? We poured into the arcade boxes to play Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter damn near every day, every weekend. It's a <laughs> lot of money, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it was like, there was no, it wasn't enough. He's like, even if you beat the game, you want to start over and play with a different character and see if you could do it with uh, Chun-Li or with uh, Raiden, like, yeah, I I couldn't believe it, but it always felt like money well spent because it was just so amazing at the time. Yeah, you know, even even you know, two rivalries seem to be a a big debate back then and even now with with us grown folks. But there was always a debate with what was better, Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, and also the the debate of Mario versus Sonic. I'm gonna get to Mario and Sonic in a bit, but were you more of a Mortal Kombat guy? in general, or more of a Street Fighter guy, and which one do you think is better? Um, that's a good question. I think... I think that I, I, I was definitely more of a Mortal Kombat guy back then, and I probably think that Mortal Kombat was better. And, that, you know, I love both of them, so it's not meant to fight against Street Fighter. But uh, maybe I just sucked at Street Fighter, because I feel like most of my moves... <laughs> tell people that all the time like there's 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 no way you can convince me that street fighter that i'm gonna be more of a street fighter fan than Mortal Kombat because people just gotta realize Mortal Kombat was better it, 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 <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean you have ken ryu and then blanca and them guys all uh bison all classic characters but i'm like i felt like the gameplay was was better for Mortal Kombat. i felt it i felt like it was faster i felt like you know, in Street Fighter, you hit three, four moves, your power is done. 
And in Mortal Kombat, he, at least you can have a chance to come back, and you're not going to die real quick in the game. Plus the fact that I think... Um, I think they started in, in Mortal Kombat uh, 3 where you can play like uh, a two-on-two kind of thing where you, you know, do, a, do a tag team duo match. And I, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think Street Fighter was doing that at the time. And I, I felt Mortal Kombat just evolved better um, and quicker than Street, Fighter, uh, than, than Street Fighter. Both great games, classic games. I'll play both, but if I have both in front of me, I'm going to play Mortal Kombat more than I do Street Fighter. Yeah, and, and what you mentioned about World Combat 3 is like a good point to how, maybe, you know, we can debate now what was better, but at the time, Mortal Kombat was way, way more popular, because, you know, you had Street Fighter 2 in 1992 that was like an awesome game, and then you had Mortal Kombat in 1993, Mortal Kombat 2 the next year, Mortal Kombat 3, like, there was a lot of iterations of that coming out, because people just couldn't get enough, and that was not the same with Street Fighter, there was the Turbo Edition and the Championship Edition, but like... Mortal Kombat just kept innovating and adding new characters. Like, uh, they were really quick with embracing that. Um, and I think that also added to, like, them really getting what we wanted at the time, you know, really responding to their fans. Yeah, plus, the, you know, they had the, the tournament thing in, in, in Part 3. Yep. And plus the fact the whole fatality part was something, like, you know, little kids look forward to. Like, yeah, I'm going to beat you, but I'm going to know this cold back, back, down, XB stuff and, and, and put a, a fatality on you when the Street Fighter, you, you win the match. Uh, I mean, you win right. the fight, but that's really it. <laughs> you can't do nothing else yep. after that. Yep. Now, the other one was Sonic and Mario. Now, for those video game people that did not grow up in, in, in our era with the whole Sonic versus Mario I want you to, to break it down to them on uh, of how impactful, monumental, and historical that rivalry was for the video game industry, and I guess you could say uh, can still say still is. Well, it's funny you ask about the still is because like one of the heartbreaking moments for me was like I I, I printed out like, a, a copy of my book proposal. So this is before I wrote it, probably like two or three years ago, and I gave it to my aunt to the family. Uh, get together and my cousin who was eight years old he saw it and he saw like there's a picture of sonic and mario on the cover and he was like sonic and mario and he was very excited and i said oh you you know those guys <laughs> and he's like he's like yeah they're 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 friends with each other and i was like what he's like yeah they're at the olympics together sonic and mario go to the olympics ah, the olympic and i was like i was like dude they hate each other <laughs> <laughs> nowadays like you know uh, nintendo publishes most of the sonic games and Sonic appears in Smash Brothers. So anyway, it wasn't always like that. Let me uh, sit you down and tell you years ago, uh, Mario was the most popular game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. There was Mario's, Mario 2, Super Mario Bros. 3, and obviously Mario was their iconic character who would be the referee in the, you know, the tennis game, and he was like, I think he was either the referee in Tyson or he was in the crowd. But, so Mario was like, the coolest guy in the video game world. And when Sega was struggling with the Master System and uh, trying to come up with like their own version of Mario, their best effort was, uh, was a kid named Alex Kidd, who was, uh, well, he was fine, but not unspectacular. I mean, those games were pretty fun, but they didn't have anything on Mario. And so Sega intentionally set out to create a Mario killer. They held an in-house mascot competition where employees were encouraged to submit designs for 
like a new icon that could beat Mario. And so you had armadillos and rabbits and all sorts of things. And the winning entry was a hedgehog named Sonic. And, uh, you know, the original iteration of Sonic or some of the early incarnations, uh, he had a rock band. He had a busty girlfriend named Madonna. He had fangs at one point. Uh, these were all things that were eventually changed, uh, a lot of it because of under Tom's leadership with Al Milton and Madeline Schroeder to kind of make him more into like the, uh, an iconic character that could exist 20 years later and be kind of like the Mickey Mouse Mario for Sega. But, uh, you know, part of that idea of, of intentionally creating America was to do things that Mario couldn't do. And uh, Yuji Naka, the game developer, was able to come up with a way to make this guy move extremely fast. Um, you know, it was like Mario on speed, kind of in the way that Mortal Kombat was Street Fighter. And and, Mario, and Sonic, you know, he really just had an attitude that really that resonated with the 90s. Like, it was very much in line with, the, like, Bill Clinton becoming the president and the grunge movement in Seattle. It was like this edgy, whatever attitude, but it's still optimistic, even though it was kind of subversive. And Sega did such a great job of, of coming up with this character, and instead of just releasing the game when it was ready, um, they really strategically wanted him to come out uh, in the best way possible to hurt Nintendo. And for sake of America, that was when the Super Nintendo was coming out of the United States. So the SNES came out in the fall of 1991, and very intentionally, Sonic came out a couple months before during that summer. And the way that Sega introduced Sonic to the world, and kind of like getting at your point about it, this rivalry, truly being a rivalry and kind of changing things in the years ahead is that the Super Nintendo had not come out during the summer of 1991 yet in the United States. It was out in Japan, like the Super Famicom. So Sega got their hands on copies of that and set up a mall tour across the United States so that players could play Sonic, this new character, versus Mario, Super Mario World, which had yet to come out, uh, and also which Nintendo did not really like that their competitor was kind of putting out a game that they had yet to release. Uh, and they went, their, like, their theory was like, you have to, once you play Sonic and Mario, it, there's not going to be a question. You're going to go with Sega. And that was generally true. Like 85% of the people or 90% of the people selected Sonic over Mario. And that really fueled the popularity of Sonic, not just as a game, but sort of as like, in that context we are talking about earlier, like you're either a Sonic guy or a Mario guy, you're a Sega guy or a Nintendo guy. And they really intentionally fueled that desire of rivalry because they thought that that was the best way for them to succeed. Now, in your, in your personal opinion, Super Mario World or Sonic 1, which is the better game and which one would you rather play? Well, that's kind of, okay, I think that's a good question because it's two quests. Like, the answer, <laughs> I think Sonic the Hedgehog is the better game. Okay. Or innovative game. I think Sonic is a, you know, not just is he a better character then, but like the fact that he was very different than everything before. Even just because of the speed, it's like he was, his attitude and his speed were so different. But I do think the more replayable game is Super Mario World. So um, after all these years, I probably would prefer to play Super Mario World. But if I had to award one a better game and induct one into the Video Game Hall of Fame or to kind of just tip my hat my cap, it would definitely be Sonic. But part of the problem with like him being so fast is that you do feel a little bit of a sense of a lack of control, and probably more so 
the, the thing I would want that makes Super Mario World replayable and make a lot of the Nintendo games replayable is there's so there's so many levels to it. Like the, the game goes on for a very long time, and uh, you know I don't think you say the same for Sonic. It was maybe harder to get to the end, but uh, it, it doesn't have all the same levels and stuff that the Super Mario uh, that Super Mario World had. I recall. Super Mario World being very annoying, <laughs> and I, I must have broke my controller so many times. I must have thrown it on the floor at, at the TV because it was just, you know, you you you're, you're trying to beat these boards, and you kept getting uh, kept getting eaten by the whoever was in there, and the ghosts and the Ghost Valley stuff. I was just like, <laughs> as a kid, I'm like, come on, and then then they put me in the castle. I have like three lives left. I have no mushroom. I have no raccoon feather. I'm going into the castle all by myself with nothing, no Yoshi. And at that time, it was so frustrating because recently I bought a Super Nintendo, maybe um, in the last four or five months. And I brought it to my job. I work with kids. And, you know, Blake, <laughs> they looked at me like, ooh, what's this? And I said, uh, it's, it's, it's the Super Nintendo. Before the Wii and all your little uh, devices now that you play with, this is like the main thing. And they looked at me, oh, I don't want to play that. Then I started bringing out the games, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, Super Mario World, um, Mario Kart. And slowly but surely, Blake, I don't know what happened, but these kids don't play Xbox with me no more. They don't play PlayStation with me no, no more. They ask me for Super Nintendo every single day and i'm like awesome. I, i'm like you know this game was like back in 1991 right it was like yeah but it's mario it's yoshi luigi i want to play him it's just so fascinating that games that came out more than 25 years ago a system that came out more than 25 years ago still is it, it, very relevant and popular with kids who are 10 11 12 years old now and they don't care what it is if they know mario if they know sonic if they know zelda donkey kong doesn't matter what year the game came out. Doesn't matter what system, they're still gonna play it. That's that's an awesome story, and that like really shows the quality of these games. Because I think that there's a, a misconception that that like because you and I are 32, 33, 31, whatever. Like the reason that we we value this game so much is because of nostalgia, and like I'm sure that factors into it right. in our lives. But the games are really great, and it's a really golden era of gaming because. If someone did the same thing to us, like, you know, brought, you know, said, put away your Xbox, put away your PlayStation, let me show you the Atari 2600, and let's play Pong together and play Pitfall together, like, we would not have that same reaction, because those games were, like, they were fine or they were fun, but, like, it wasn't in the same way that, that Zelda and Donkey Kong would be, and, and, like, the reason that kids, even 20, 30 years later, still like those games, so... Like, I think that that's just something that's kind of underrated with how good the games really were and why they're able to withstand the test of time. It's not just because it has a special place in art. The games are really good. We're chatting with Blake Harris. He's the author of Console Wars. He's on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. I got a few more for you, Blake, before I let you go. Um, sure. Now, for those who don't know, I know you were uh, talking about the whole Sonic story. Um, I did not know this until I read it, but Mr. Needle Mouse <laughs> was right, right. the original name they had for Sonic the Hedgehog before they changed it. Thank God they did it. Um, the original he uh, Hedgehog, like you said, had fangs, uh, spike collar, 
electric guitar. It was totally different than, than the Sonic we all know now. If they had oh. kept the Hedgehog the way it looked, how do you think things would have turned out for Sega? Uh, that's really going to ask myself a lot. Like, and I also ask myself, if Sonic hadn't happened, like, would Sega still been able to be successful like do they need that one game or could they have found that same magic like from a marketing standpoint and development standpoint with another um I think like kind of in my mental experiment I think that the outcome is kind of like you get something like Crash Bandicoot which is an awesome game I remember playing it I loved it right. but you know Crash Crash isn't really around today like my my uh my nephew who knows Sonic and Mario doesn't know Crash Bandicoot and you know, I think it just goes down as like a as like a very good game, but I don't think it would have been the game changer that it was. Like, I don't think you could have built Saturday morning cartoons around that version of Sonic. I think that, um, and I don't think you could have come up with Sonic Two and Sonic Three and Sonic Spinball and all the other things that they did. You know, you couldn't have used it as the mascot character that it was. But like, interestingly enough, you know, the, we know that Sega of America got their way and they got the version of Sonic that they wanted and that it was successful. Like, I, I was playing that game Sonic Generations a couple of years ago, and it shows the Sonic from 1991, and he's kind of, like, standing side-by-side side with the Sonic of whatever year that came out. And the, and the Sonic nowadays, or up to that point, was, like, much more like the Japanese version that they initially wanted. Um, I thought that was interesting, and I especially thought it was interesting because the Sonic game has been selling as well over the past 10 years, so maybe they should go back to their roots a bit. Now, one part in the book that, that was really interesting to me, and, I, and I'm pretty sure most, most won't know about it, and it was something I did not know as well, was how EA, Electronic Arts, took their own game in John Madden football and tweaked it and created Joe Montana football. Same, same yeah. gameplay, but it, it, it changed a bit. Um, how crazy, or question one, how crazy was that move by Tom Kalinske to convince uh, Trip Hawkins into doing that. Uh, yeah, it was insane. And, and now I feel like such an idiot because of all the times when I was a kid saying, like, no, Joe Montana football is so much better than Madden. I mean, they were basically the same game. <laughs> it's the same anything, game. <laughs> Madden, like, they essentially made Montana worse so that EA still had the better of the game. But, yeah, I mean, that was crazy. And kind of also shows you the power of the market because, Games really were the same. They used the same engine. I spoke to the guys who developed Madden, uh, sorry, who spoke to develop Montana, and they like they intentionally were trying to make a game that was worse, like that looked almost as good and played almost as good, um, and and it still managed to outsell uh, Madden at various times. But it was that relationship with EA and, and Sega was so interesting. The, I you know I interviewed a ton of people from EA because I'm personally interested in the sports games. And I think that every single person I talked to from EA told me that the only reason Sega was successful was because of EA. And I think every single person I talked to from Sega said the only reason EA was successful was because of Sega. So they both thought that they were the reason for the other one's success. Uh, I think the truth is somewhere in between. But uh, it, it was interesting to see how, you know, basically that, that meeting and that, that whole continuous circumstance was like EA had legally reverse-engineered the Sega Genesis and was going to potentially illegally or in a gray area uh, make games on their own and make games for other customers that would be released on the Genesis. Uh, but they were able to come to terms and give EA a sweet deal and also, in exchange, get 
their own flagship football game, which was really just a ripped-off version of EA's flagship football game. Now, did you notice that back in the days that that both games were similar, or did or were you in the dark of that until you started the the whole interview <laughs> process? I was definitely in the dark on that. I, I had no idea. Now, I, I'm pretty sure, like, um, once you found it out, there, there had to be something within you say, man, I, I, I got to go buy John Madden, and I got to go buy Joe Montana and play both, and I got really got to see and really dissect, like, wow, these are really the same t- <laughs> same games. <laughs> no, I did, and it, it okay. really is. And I guess, like, I just had blinders on as a kid, or I don't know, like, I... Like I kind of remember, like I feel, I felt like these games like were alien technology that just came out of thin air. Like I didn't even realize that there were like men and women behind the scenes that were actually making these things and like business deals. So it never even would have occurred to me, even if I were conscious how similar they were. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, looking back, it's it's really interesting to see uh, how very very similar they actually are. Now, now looking back at it, what's the impact uh, of doing that? Because like you said. John Madden was out first, Jen, then Joe Montana, then obviously Joe Montana did did better in the sales. Then then John Madden. How what was the impact of um Sega creating Joe Montana with the same likes of, of John Madden? I think a couple of things. I think one, it shows you the power of video game marketing and how people don't think about that enough. Because if it's really the same game or actually like the Joe Montana game was worse, like technologically speaking, from the developers at EA, it was supposed to be worse. And the fact that it sold better and that people liked it more shows that if you market a product well, that if you get a license from Joe Montana, who was the golden boy versus John Madden, who was, you know, the kid, like, we knew him as an announcer. He wasn't the celebrity he was. Now it's kind of busy because the game, the franchise, went so well. But, like, it shows that if you market it well, you'll be okay. And it also, like, the other really important impact to that was it kind of helped... Uh, designate Sega as the sports console. Uh, maybe because of it, because they had the Joe Montana game, but, or maybe because they had two games. Cause, you know, you could get both, or because they at least had it available. You know, they were, that was one of their main competitive advantages, was they had all these sports games that kind of helped shape their identity. So that was like a really, really big impact that that deal had, um, and that, that relationship going forward with EA had on them. Now... <clears throat> Gonna get to some serious questions before I let you go. Now, how, right. how, how grueling and, and, and frustrating uh, was it for for Tom Kalinske to deal with not only what with what he was doing with Sega of America, but also Sega of Japan? Because majority of the time, neither one can get along or coexist. Because it seems that Nintendo was not the only competitor for Tom; it was also Sega of Japan. Yeah. Well, you know. When you write a 500-page book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, you kind of expect the most interesting battle to be about between Sega and Nintendo. But it really was between Sega of America and Sega of Japan that was the more intriguing drama and ultimately what doomed the company. And, yeah, I can't even imagine what Tom was going through during that period of time where the more successful he was, the more difficulties he encountered with Sega of Japan because either they were jealous or they wanted to move on to the next generation of what eventually became the Saturn. And, like, you know, a lot of, like, day-to-day difficulties um, are hard to kind of express in a book or even all these years later, because we all face day-to-day difficulties in our job or whatever. But the fact that, like, 
the reason that the Saturn, you know, the, 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 the real beginning of Sega's downfall was with the Saturn, and they got beat by the N64 and the Sony PlayStation especially. And Sega had the chance to have both of those consoles, or to have a partnership with Sony that would have been the Sega PlayStation, or to have a partnership with Silicon Graphics that ultimately became the Nintendo 64. And it was because of that bad blood between America and Japan, they didn't go in that direction. And so they were actually, like, defeated by the two consoles that Tom wanted to have instead of what they ended up with. And so, like, that has to just be brutal to actually watch it go down like that. Um, you know, luckily, he is a very optimistic guy. He's a resilient guy. I, my temperament is a little bit feistier. I feel like I probably would have uh, thrown something out the window and got fired or quit uh, earlier on as he would have, but he's a great diplomat, and he tried his best. And one of my favorite things that someone said to me was, uh, I met with Ellen Beth Van Buskirk, who was, uh, she's EBVB from the book, and she was, uh, you know, their main PR person at Sega. And she was telling me how she met with Tom in, like, late 1994 or 1995, when the writing was on the wall, Sega was going down, um, and she said, you know, Tom was talking to her about how difficult it was and how difficult their relationship with Japan was, and she said, like, why don't you just go? Like, you know, you'll be able to get that money elsewhere. Like, the ship is thinking, you know it. And he said, it is, but I feel like I, it's my job as a captain to go down with the ship. And that's, that's pretty rare in corporate America. You know, a right. lot of times these guys get their golden parachutes and they leave early. But he had that, like, very old-school, admirable mentality. Like, like in the Titanic, like, the captain goes down with the ship. That's his responsibility. He'll try his best to cushion the blow or to make it not happen. But that's just the kind of guy he was. He wasn't going to bail, and he wanted to fight until the very end. But ultimately, it was a, it was a doomed battle because he didn't have the final say. Now, correct me if, if I'm wrong, or you might you might ag- uh, agree with me with what with um what um, I'm gonna say. But from what I read, kind of like putting into perspective of what led to Sega's downfall. I know you mentioned just two minutes ago about the the 64 and the PlayStation, but to me, I felt like it was this: it was the back and forth with Sega of Japan. It was PlayStation. You can add the the, the 64 to that. The the Donkey Kong Country game that came out for that was released for Super Nintendo that gave Super Nintendo more life, and the fact yep, that yep. and the fact that Sega had too many consoles out. They, it, it was Mega Drive, it was Genesis, it was Saturn, it was this, it was that. And it was like it, it, it would, they were just putting things out like every every couple of months, every year, and whatever they, whatever they were putting out was not being successful as it was for Nintendo. So to me. Those are the five things that, that that me as a reader can say, you know what? Second downfall was 64, Donkey Kong Country, too many consoles, Sega Japan, and um, the PlayStation. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And that's, like, the, the like, it, like it's, when you say too many consoles, you're saying, like, basically, like, the too many peripherals in the consoles, meaning, like, the 32X, and meaning, like, Sega CD. And, like, right, CD. right, right. The other thing. And that's totally true. And because, like, I feel like everyone thinks that Sega CD was a huge disaster. Uh, personally, I, I, I don't think the game's great, but I think that's mostly because it's been 20 years. But, like, the Sega CD was actually a good thing at the time. It was profitable and successful. But that was kind of like a tipping point for after the Sega CD came 32X. And then there was also Pico and there was Nomad. Like, yeah, there was at one point eight different 
um, hardware systems that Sega was developing, uh, that Sega had to support. And that's, like, ridiculous. Um, so I totally think that was a huge problem, not just with, you know, like, as consumers, it sucked because it was like, wait, do we need to get, like, what do you, if you have the Sega CD, does it work with the Sega 32X? And, like, which games work for which? And, like, all that. Like, it was, it was very confusing. And it also made you start to lose trust in Sega, where, like, all right, maybe I don't need to get these things. And then imagine also, like, the developers. The developers only have a finite amount of time to develop games. And if Sega's saying, hey, this is our new big thing, Sega CD, and then a year and a half later, it's, no, no, this is our new big thing, 32X. No, 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 this is our new big thing. Yeah. That, you know, becomes... Uh, they, they lose interest. And, and that, you know, but all those things kind of spill into one another because part of the problem with that was the Sega Japan thing. I don't think that Sega would have wanted to release 32X unless they were kind of pressured and forced by uh, Japan. And also, I think that maybe, like, the 32X, which was, was no great shakes at all, but, like, if the Saturn didn't come out till like, two years later, then maybe that would have been the thing that helped ex- extend the lifespan. But because that, everything got thrown on top of each other, um, it really did exacerbate something that was a problem. And, uh, yeah, like, you know, I, if I had to boil it down, those would probably be the, the five main reasons for their failure or for the beginning of their slide, because um, they still had a couple, they still had one more console in them after that, the Dreamcast, which was actually all mm. it uh, fell apart. But, like, if, if those were the five main reasons, if you had to say one was the, the official nail in the coffin for them, which one would it be? Would it be one of those five or something else? No, I think that the main thing is the is the Sega of America, Sega of Japan, inability to see eye to eye slash inability for Sega of America to keep doing what you're doing. Like, take out personalities, egos, and even take out the games and the advertising. Like, if you just look at the numbers, like, between 1990 and 1994, Sega goes from 5% of the market to over 55% of the market in the United States. Like, they, whether, like, maybe Nintendo was higher, this, like, the, you know, the, the leader this month or Satan was, but, like, they were, they were a huge player at the worst they were attacked with Nintendo. They were, like, the leader of the video game industry in America. In Japan, they went from 5% to like 10% to maybe 15%, but they never exceeded, they never really exceeded 20%. They never were the real player in Japan. So if you're just looking purely at numbers, if one part of the company is doing extremely well and the other part of the company is not doing extremely well, like it just seems so unfortunate that you're taking orders from the part of the company that's not doing very well and that as that part of the company gains more control, the American numbers start to look more like those disappointing numbers from Japan. So that's kind of why I really feel like the Japan relationship is the, is, is the nail in the coffin because, I'm, you know, I, I obviously have good relationships with these people and I hear it from their perspective. And there's an incentive on the part of Tom and Al to blame Japan because, like, they don't want it to be their fault. And right. it's my job as a writer and a journalist to investigate, like, are they just passing the buck or... Is there a lot of accuracy to what they're saying? And so I try to just look at the numbers. And I also, in the middle of uh, writing the book, or actually really early on, I got a job. By, I, I was hired by Sega of America nowadays, like in 2011 or something, to go to Sega of Japan and shoot some short documentary films. And 
Granted, it's 20 years later, and so it's not the exact same people, and it's not the same regimes that take us in a different place, so you can't draw an exact comparison. But I felt everything that the people of Sega of America were telling me. I felt that Sega of Japan was passive-aggressively trying to, to destroy them. Like, we were, we were there to shoot some documentaries, and they made it so tough on us. They made it as difficult as possible for us to do this thing, which ultimately was to make documentaries about their, about their game makers that would help the company and help their game. So I thought there was no reason why they shouldn't have tried to make this the best case scenario. Uh -huh. But from everything from, they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell us how much time we have with these people, they wouldn't tell us which room we were in, so we had to keep moving our equipment, which took an hour. Uh, it was just like all these little things that they went out of their way to try to make it more difficult for us for absolutely no reason. It should have just been like, sure, we'll accommodate you because you're trying to help us. Mm -hmm. And so that was like, that to me is really why it was that SOA, SOJ relationship that was uh, the downfall of the company. And so it's really sad nowadays. You know, it's sad to see how things evolved after Tom and in the 15 years since. And it seems like symbolically like the, you know, the, the end of that, whatever was left of that golden era that Sega of Japan closed the Sega of America office this past year, um, I think in January. It was like they finally killed their opponent, who was them, and now they're like, what a waste of like. Like everything they could have been. I got two more uh, for you, Blake. Now, if you sure. can, um, if someone asks you, or someone like me asks you, so what is what is Sega's legacy? I I, I know they they had Genesis, they had the, the 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 Master System, they had Sonic. They they pushed Nintendo to become what I think you know to be a, a better company. Changed um, what they were doing, not be so kiddy and, and be a little more aggressive. Um, what is the defining uh, or the, the definition of the legacy of Sega? I think, like, there's, there's a million things that they did, a million contributions they made. The most important one is they made video games a mainstream form of entertainment. Right. Because like, in 1990, like, I remember, like, my brother and I would ask my dad to sit down and play Mario with us or to, like, come play video games. And he was an awesome dad, so he would, he would do it. But he always did it in a way like as if, like a way a parent acts when a girl, when the daughter invites him to the tea party. It was like, you know, he was like, it was like not, not condescending, but he was kind of just like, oh, sure, like let me play this very childish thing and I'll <laughs> spend some time with my children, but I'm not going to enjoy it myself. But isn't it cute that they think that this is fun? And if we asked my dad five years later to play Genesis with us, to play NBA Jam, or to play the PlayStation when we got that, like, he was actually interested. Like, it was, it was no longer something for him to be ashamed into, in doing. And that's because of Sega's legacy and their impact of making video games a mainstream activity for players older than 10 years old and, and to show the potential that, like, you know, some games can be violent, some games can have sexual undertones, some games will be family-friendly, like Sonic and Castle of Illusion, and... Some will be sports games that will look very much like the, you know, the games you watch on television. To really just show the potential of what games can be and kind of set that trajectory for where we went next um, in a way that Nintendo was not doing and probably wouldn't have done. And, and that's where I think like, the lasting impact of Sega is. The last one I have for you, um, the book is out, um, hardcover. I think it got on paperback last month. And the next big thing is um, the feature film. So me... Um, I, I'm a fan of just watching films like documentary or just like the real life story, like how Social Network did about Facebook. Now, 
mm-hmm. talk about how what what's new with, with the movie, how the movie is supposed to be portrayed. Is it going to be like a social network type movie? Yeah. So there's actually two films, which is amazing. There, there is going to be the documentary, and there is going to be the dramatized version, like the social network. And kind of the logic for that was my, you know, my, some of my favorite movies from the past couple of years were the Social Network and Moneyball and other you know, based on true story movies. And I always felt like in those cases, like I wish in addition to those movies, there was also a documentary so that after seeing this fictional version or even before, like I could actually see Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo and Billy yeah. Bean. So we wanted to do both versions. And so we shot all the interviews in the documentary. We've been editing that for the past year or so. And we, uh, we're now almost done with the documentary. I'm actually going out to L.A. on Wednesday next week to uh, sit down with Seth and Evan, and I'll be there with my co-director, Jonah. And uh, we'll hopefully kind of figure out the final steps to get the documentary done and uh, hopefully premiere it early next year. And then in addition to that, there's obviously the feature film, which we're doing with Sony Pictures, and Seth and Evan are writing and directing that. And uh, we're still at the very early stages of that um, because we've been working with Seth and Evan for two and a half years on the documentary, um, but, you know, everything, every time that we move forward with the documentary, it's kind of like them moving forward with the feature because we kind of see it as, you know, one, one project with sort of two phases. So, uh, you know, I'll keep you updated on where we're going with the feature film, but for right now our focus is on this documentary and trying to get that done. And I imagine that the feature will have a similar, a similar rhythm to it because there's a big difference between a 550-page book and a 90-minute movie. Um, you know, you really have to condense it down to just sort of the big beats, like release of Sonic, the uh, Senate subcommittee hearing. And so uh, this process for the past year or two with the documentary has been extremely helpful for sort of setting the stage for that feature and kind of figuring out, like, what are the big moments that are part, you know, that are that we can actually present on screen that aren't just, you know, exposition or kind of like, you know, in that relationship with Sega of America and Sega of Japan, how do you show that on screen as opposed to just, like, Here's what Tom's thinking. Here's what this little anecdote this, this guy's experiencing. So that's kind of where we're at. Blake Harris, great job on the book, man. I definitely appreciate you coming on. We're at what an hour and twenty minutes, man. I I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to fit everything in, and and I did. So you know, I'm pretty sure we, we'll we'll do a part two, probably shorter. Um, part two next time, but like I said, like I said from the beginning, man, it was a great book, a great job. I'm 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 definitely a, definitely a fan. People should go out and read it, whether they're video game fans or not. I think it's something that they uh, should know and, and need to know as uh, as it pertains to the whole video game industry. Um, before I let you go, if you want, you can um, have the, the forum to let people know where they can find you, follow you on Twitter or whatever um, you have coming up next in the future. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I really appreciate your kind words about the book. I kind of approach this all like, I'm, I'm so happy how the book turned out, but at the same time, you know, it's not my story. I'm just grateful to these people for opening up their time and trust to let me tell it. So I love answering questions on Twitter. You know, that's how we found each other because I think it's so important that I kind of do my job of, like, being the spokesman for these people and these pioneers in this great story. So you can find me on Twitter at Blake J. Harris, NYC. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold and, you know, on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com. There's actually a really great uh, audio book that was narrated by this actor, Fred Berman, um, which you can get on Audible. Um, I recommend that. 
it feels more like a movie the way he describes it. Um, but yeah, so I don't have anything to to promote or to hawk at this time other than the book, and I'll just keep working on the documentary and hope that you and your listeners will like it uh, when that comes out as well. And yeah, in the you know we spoke for an hour and twenty minutes. I could speak for ten more hours because I'm so passionate <laughs> about the topic, and also because like you, I grew up during this era, so we could just spend like an hour arguing about. Uh, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter but uh, if you want to you know I'm happy to come back if you have some questions that you forgot or if your listeners have some questions that they want us to go over so just let me know but uh, this has been awesome thanks so much Randy no problem again Blake Harris he's on Twitter at Blake J Harris NYC the author of Console Wars Sega Nintendo and the battle that, that defined a generation Blake thank you man again I appreciate it my pleasure alright